Welcome to Shaping the Future. This week I'm speaking with long-term environmental campaigner and author Sir Jonathan Porritt about his new book, Hope in Hell. I urge anyone looking for a comprehensive overview of the multifaceted subject of climate change to read this excellent piece of work. The book covers the science, policy, policy obstructions, as well as the current and future challenges and the impact on the human psyche that we see emerging as a result. In this interview, Sir Jonathan discusses the limits of the Paris Agreement and its roadmap of unbinding incremental change. By its design, it allows governments to play loose with their nationally determined contribution to reducing carbon emissions. He also discusses the perilous threat of melting polar ice caps and glaciers that we are now watching in real time. In the midst of political ineptness, Jonathan has one final suggestion for how we can each take action in our own ways and in our own lives. Thank you for listening to Shaping the Future. There are many more podcasts in the pipeline, so please do subscribe on any major podcast channel or on YouTube. Jonathan, thank you very much for speaking to me today. I'm just going to talk about Hope in Hell, your new book. The title of the book is very stark, and reading it, there is a matter of factness to the presentation of detailed information. Can you talk a bit about who the book is for and what, as a whole piece of work, you felt you really needed to communicate? I wrote Hope in Hell primarily for young people, actually, who are just beginning to think through the implications of everything they read about in the media and they hear about every now and then there's a the new program on TV or some social media storm, whatever it might be. But it's quite difficult to know the degree to which this will genuinely shape the whole of the rest of their lives in a pretty dramatic way. And I also wanted to write it for some, if you like, existing climate activists, people who've been worried about this for a long time. But it's hard keeping up with the details of the science, to be honest, because it's very episodic what goes on out there in the media. So for me, it was an opportunity to dig much deeper into the science than I'd done for at least seven years, and really to update myself fully with all the work from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, some of the key advocates for accelerated transformation rather than just doing more of the same. Sure. And that three months that I was able to spend doing that was eye-opening, actually, because it just showed me how much less room for manoeuvre we've got than people might hope for. Was there a stark finding that really made you sit up or was it a, a collection of all of these findings? It's the combination that is pretty, pretty grim. But I guess that the data that really made me sit up, as you put it, is the data about melting because we've got this extraordinary phenomenon going on now all around the world. Anywhere with ice is melting, basically, whether you're talking at either polar extreme or with the world's glaciers, whatever it might be. And that accelerated melt rate now is astonishing, actually. And I still don't think that has been adequately captured in terms of some of the official IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel's approach to this, even though now we pretty much know that the minimum sea level rise average sea level rise by the end of this century will be a meter. There are not many scientists now who would put their name to a less than a meter ballpark figure here. And there are some scientists, as you know, Nick, who believe that it is going to be significantly more than one sure. meter and that it could be as much as two meters. Now, you only have to think about what one meter sea level rise means for many, many parts of the world to sit up and think, whoa, okay, that, and it isn't all going to happen 
right at the end of the century. This is going to happen cumulatively over all of the years between now and the end of the century with growing numbers of flood and storm related impacts on often the world's poorest communities. So that stuff, which I really dug down deep into in a special report from the IPCC about this, I think that just brought me up short and, and made me think, if we can't stop the melting, then we're going to get these tipping points in the Arctic and the Antarctic, which may then lead to this phenomenon of runaway climate change. Just this one issue of melting, it's so universal. I mean, it impacts countries like the US and Britain, it impacts Bangladesh. It doesn't matter where you are or who you are, you're going to be impacted. And previously, we always assumed that maybe the more developed countries didn't really do much because they figured they were immune to it. Now we know we're not. It seems that we're still struggling to make any definitive positive action, even close to the Paris Agreement. Does this still sort of frustrate you? <laughs> it must do, I mean. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> it is mighty frustrating. I think that the best explanation of that was the phrase that uh, Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of England, uses quite a lot. He calls this the tragedy of the horizon. And what that means is that we cannot help but focus on the things that are immediately in our scope especially when you're dealing with something like a pandemic, like the emergency of COVID-19. And the human mind just does an almost instinctive business of putting off into the future things that seem to be more about the future. And if you talk about a one meter sea level rise by the end of the century to people, they think, end of the century. Well, look, I'm struggling to think about what's going to happen between now and the end of the week or the end of the year or whatever it might be. So, okay, I get the fact that's important. But there's very little space in my brain to give the attention to that issue that I know I probably should do, but I'm surrounded with all these other burning issues, as it were. And so we push it out and we push it out. And because we keep pushing it out and keep talking about this, amazingly, lots of politicians still think about climate change as a challenge for the future rather than a challenge for today. We keep missing these deadlines, which we know we ought to be meeting to address this challenge. And that means the problem gets worse and worse every year that we continue to push it out. So I think that's the dominant reason, because I think we're through the period of time where you've got massed ranks of denialists mm -hmm. and completely corrupt politicians and industry lobbyists and large oil and gas companies. I think we're largely through that period now. And I think we're into a more complicated set of psychological framing that isn't really helping us very much at all. Okay. And you just referenced the pandemic as being something that is quite all encompassing for, for mm. everyone at the moment. But there are parallels between the pandemic and the climate. Um, crisis, if you want. Can you talk a bit about how you see those parallels and how you mention them in the book? I think there are parallels and I think they're really important and tell us something about the potential resources we have to deal with the climate emergency. In reality, if you look at the way we have deployed, mobilized national resources, because most of the responses so far have been on a nation state basis. There's been some international collaboration, but mostly it's the nation state or the EU, for instance, whatever it might be. And you look at the way we've done that and set aside decades worth of economic orthodoxy in order to come up with an appropriate response to this. That has been a formidable reminder of the power of the state to intervene in the interests of its citizens when it needs to do so. So a genuine emergency response put to one side 
for a moment, Nick, issues about delivery and competence and everything else, which preoccupies here in the UK pretty much every day. But put that to one side, the actual mobilization of the nation's resources has been formidable. And if we were then to be able to take it in the same vein, to see the climate emergency as something that required the same kind, the same level and urgency of combined business, civil society, and government response, then you can see why we would be able to come up with a whole set of interventions across the board of human behavior, which would be proportionate to the scale of the climate emergency. It does feel that socially people are becoming much, much more aware and anxious. And if the policy side of it was explored further and communicated further and the whole job side was explored more, much more of the public would come on board. I noticed this week from the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership, their press release about 150 businesses urging EU states to tighten their climate policy. I mean, that's amazing. There's big names in that whole list. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it seems like we've got two unexpected allies in business and people, social. And if we still, especially in the UK, we're just lacking the policy leadership. And increasingly, Nick, I mean, uh, maybe we need to be a little bit more cautious about this, but I agree with you entirely on the business leadership voice. But we've now got a growing number of very large scale investors who are also pressing for a different approach to framing capital markets, basically. And if you think back that Nick Stern's magisterial report on the economics of climate change was God knows how many years ago, but a long time ago, and people are now beginning to think, oh yeah, I remember. It was suggested to us all those years ago that we could actually address these challenges in such a way that the economy was not crashed, as some people said, but was actually made more resilient, was strengthened, created an incredible range of opportunities for our economy in terms of new technology, skills, innovation, opportunities for young people in particular. And it's great to hear Nick Stern out and about now in, in, in the current debate, just reminding people, we can do this as a win-win. We can do what we need to do to bring life back into our really badly affected economy. And we can do it in such a way as to address the need for ultra low carbon prosperity and that is that's a very powerful combination for politicians to get their heads around i'm sorry to say that this government so far including rishi sunak who everybody has very good things to say about they have not seized told of this notion of a green new deal you keep getting lots of bits of stray rhetoric either from treasury or number 10 or whatever it might be you get dribs and drabs you know, we've had three announcements about the £40 million nature recovery program. Each time it's presented as if it's completely new. Actually, it's the same announcement. It's just that it's moved a little bit further through the bureaucratic process. £40 million to do what we need to do to heal our shattered ecosystems and natural places here in the UK is literally nothing. I'm not saying it's totally irrelevant, but it's nearly totally irrelevant given the scale of the problem. So we've got this opportunity now, and if we don't seize it, boy, we are gonna be very, very angry at some point next year, that's for sure. With the EU moving in, seeming to be moving in a better direction, yeah. and if there's a Biden presidency which seems to be talking the right talk at the moment, you still have, and this you put a lot of emphasis on this in the book, you still have China, you still have India, you still have Africa, I mean, these are on a scale that it's hard for a lot of us to imagine, I think, in terms of the impact they have on our future outcomes. 
but it seems that working together we could define yeah. a better future is that something that you agree with yeah no and i really want to hang on to that potential because let's just park the usa for a moment okay but when you're dealing or trying to work out the role of countries like china and india it really is important to have some sense of equivalence in the way we address it. I mean, I'm personally very ambiguous about this, as you know, in the book, because much of what China stands for in the world is utterly abhorrent to me. I've been a supporter of the cause of Tibet for the last 40 years. I despise what China is doing in terms of the oppression of the Uyghurs and all sorts of things regarding the the impact on people's human and democratic rights. However, China has made it possible for us now to talk about a renewables revolution. This utterly astonishing fall year on year on year in the price of solar power is almost entirely down to China making that possible and doing it in a way that has provided the world with a transformative technology in both the rich world and the poor world. That's also of relevance to India. We happen to have a pretty autocratic Prime Minister in Prime Minister Modi, but he has this passion for solar power and he is pushing forward with this incredibly ambitious goal for 2030, rollout of solar power, not just because he thinks it's a technology which will work, but because he can see it will reinforce his support in rural areas. Because what you've got now is all of those sad promises for rural India to roll the mm. grid out, which would deliver coal-fired electrons to them. People have largely said that was always a lie. It's still a lie. It's never going to work. We're never going to get the grid to poor rural India. So what we need now is massive investment in off-grid solar installations. And Modi's a smart enough politician to see how that works. He saw it first in his own state, and now he's making it work for the country as a whole. This means that the problems of rural India will be addressed more effectively over the next decade because of solar power than in any preceding decade. So sometimes when we talk about China and India, we've got proper concerns about the political systems in both those countries, but then you have to give credit to what it is that is happening that helps on the sustainability front as well. Okay, so when you add those into the global picture and you then return to something like the Paris Agreement, for example, which, you know, we know that even if we achieved all our NDCs, that they would double what we would have actually hoped to be at. Do you think that agreements like that are going to work? Do you think that they are good enough to confront the climate crisis? Or is it something that we're just going to sort of reach piecemeal over yeah. a period of time? Yeah. Yeah, well, this is a big debate, Nick, for sure. And to be honest, I had a pretty much flat-out row with Christiana Figueres with her Outrage and Optimism podcast, which is fascinating, because she was saying, look, the Paris Agreement will do the job, because in the Paris Agreement, you've got this so-called ratchet effect, which means that when we come to revisit the 2015 agreement, we, we will be asking countries to ratchet up the contributions they're going to make. Okay, fine. But all of these commitments are voluntary. They are all still down to ways in which each individual country chooses to implement policy to deliver its own voluntarily declared obligation. And I don't care how many rations you have. Frankly, that is inadequate, totally inadequate. So I think part of the politics of the next few years will be a shift away from these voluntary agreements that leave far too much wiggle room for countries playing fast and loose with what they've said, terrifically difficult, what are called free rider problems, where some countries do what they know they should be doing and other countries don't. I think we'll move back into a positioning where we start talking about a mandatory global treaty to reduce right. emissions of greenhouse gases. I don't see any alternative to that, to be honest. 
because we have to do this at speed now. It's no good talking about net zero carbon economies by 2050. This is irrelevant. If we actually don't get to a net zero global economy until 2050, the second half of the century is going to be an utter nightmare for the whole of humankind. So we have to bring that date forward. We have to bring it closer to 2040, in my opinion, to 2035, which is only 15 years away. And yeah. comfortable, self-serving voluntary agreements are honestly not going to cut it between now and then. So given that sense of urgency, and given that we've just delayed a milestone COP, if you like, till next year, and that is the only framework for discussing these kinds of treaties, how do you see this playing out with a, a government hosting it that don't appear to be that interested in these kinds of issues, to be perfectly honest? No, I think our government is not just on the back foot. I think it's on a, a back bottom, as it were. I don't think it's doing anything that I can detect, which would indicate the, the appropriate level of leadership, both here in the UK and in terms of engaging with other countries, as was done, of course, very effectively by Cristiano Figueres and others in the run-up to Paris. There's none of that stuff going on. So the only thing that's going to happen between now and November 2021, in my opinion, is for this government to be shamed into doing more of what it should be doing, because I don't think they've got anything that would resemble a strategy for the Conference of the Parties next year, let alone for the next decade. And everybody is pointing this out now from the Committee on Climate Change, through to independent academics, from businesses, you mentioned them before, Nick, if you read between, actually not even between the lines, if you read what leading businesses are saying now, they're saying, look, this is not good enough. You have got to intervene now to frame the market in such a way that we can respond to it. And we're up for responding to it. We want to do our part here. So I think it's going to be a pretty rough ride for the government over the next year if it's going to match the nature of this leadership challenge. We'll see. And that's why, of course, as you know, Nick, in the book, I'm absolutely clear in my own mind that the only way that politicians in the UK and elsewhere will be forced to do this is through a continuation of much more radical campaigning activity, including what we've just seen from Extinction Rebellion, nonviolent direct action applied both to the political process and to those parts of our economy that are still totally and irresponsibly dependent on fossil fuels so as to accelerate the change process. Just to return to the here and now and, and the social side of it, we are now seeing these fires in California. Yesterday or the day before I retweeted something with five hurricanes at the same oh, yeah. time in, in the Atlantic. It's now like a moving show of different visual impacts and people can't not see it, basically. One thing you mentioned, which I found very interesting, interesting in your book and I, I was talking about it with Gail Bradbrook from XR recently this research based around you need 3.4 percent of a population that's your sort of tipping point if you've got the support of a yeah. larger scale do you think we're, we're getting into that territory I mean I think we might be a long way off yet but we could accelerate that sort of that sort I of think we're getting point. I think we are getting closer and closer to that scale with a percentage of the population feeling the urgency so much that they will ramp up their own commitments, their own personal actions. They will be prepared to take direct action to break the law, as it were, but always non-violently. And then the other side of this is that you have to have very widespread support across society as a whole. So at least half the population sympathetic to and supportive of those kind of campaigns. And that's where XR and others have to be really careful because in order to protect that groundswell, 
of wide support, people refusing to be bystanders any longer, but not necessarily becoming direct campaigners themselves. One has to go really responsibly in promoting the kind of actions that we now need. So that research is enormously important. The other part of what you just said, though, Nick, is something which in America they describe as the proximity principle, which is that in all of those US states where they have been directly impacted by climate-induced disasters of one kind or another, the percentage of US citizens who want their government to be doing more and who are completely comfortable with the notion of anthropogenic, of man-made climate change, is always more than 60%, so somewhere between 60 and 70%. In those parts of the US which have not been as badly, profoundly impacted by these uh, climate-induced disasters, the percentages are much lower. So from that, you can draw a conclusion that as the impacts of climate change do indeed ramp up very starkly in our lives, the economic personal costs associated with this, more and more citizens will, in my opinion, expect their government to do more and be increasingly intolerant of them not doing more. Okay, and this is the last question really. Closing the book and putting it to one side, what next? What would you hope a reader takes away or what would, what would you look aside and say, right now this is what I've got to tackle? I think one, one of the things, I mean, I wrote this book in the middle of 2019, so I was very closely observing both the emergence of Extinction Rebellion and the school strikes and the incredible force and influence of young people on our streets more out there in the debate than they'd ever been before and I was hugely inspired by that I have to be honest and a lot of the work I'm doing now is trying to work with young people and support them in their direct campaigning so part of the story now is don't let up as individuals don't necessarily expect this to be easy but you're not entitled to hope unless you're acting to make your concerns come alive for yourself and other people do stuff just be supportive of other people who are doing stuff always if you come across someone who just talks this stuff down or makes light of it or dismisses it take them on talk to them about it show them what the reality is as Greta Thunberg keeps saying Your primary responsibility to begin with is to work out, find out what the truth of all this is, and then to convert that knowledge into changes in your own lives and being an influential change agent in your place of work, with your peer group, socially, whatever it might be. And I think that's the commitment, the the minimum commitment that we now need to ask of all our citizens in this and, frankly, every other country around the world. So it's kind of a wake-up, your activist uh, <laughs> um, yes your inner activist get after your I, yeah. I find, your, find your inner Greta that's what um, I think <laughs> uh, we, we all need to do more of because if we could locate that and live a bit more closely to it it would be a powerful <laughs> phenomenon that's for sure that's a very good place to, <laughs> to, to close the interview <laughs> exactly. so thank you very very much it's been, uh, My pleasure. It's been great nice to, to talk to you